Hello, I'm Juliet Jakes, welcoming you back to the Sweet 212 Sessions. As those of you who've listened to previous episodes will know, our plans to relaunch Sweet 212 as a fortnightly show with alternating free and subscriber-only episodes were put on hold by the coronavirus epidemic, which has brought much of the United Kingdom's cultural life to a standstill. Instead, I'm recording a series of interviews with contemporary artists, writers, filmmakers and others about their work, conducted via Skype, so apologies for the diminished audio quality, and more spontaneous than our usual output. The idea is to give a snapshot of the arts in the United Kingdom and beyond in the 21st century through individual conversations with people about their work, seeing which political concerns engage them, and how the socio-economic conditions of the time have affected their practices. All of these will be made available for free via SoundCloud, but I'd still encourage you to subscribe at patreon.com slash sweet212 as they still take time to plan and record. You can also make a one-off donation at donorbox.org slash sweet-212. Today, I'm talking to writer and artist Joanna Walsh. Joanna is the author of seven books, including the digital work Seed in 2017, as well as the short story collections Fractals in 2013, Vertigo in 2015, and Worlds from the Word's End in 2017, and a short story called Grow a Pair in 2015, as well as the novel Break Up in 2018, and a work of creative non-fiction Hotel in 2015. Her writing has also been published in Dorky Archive Press's Best European Fiction volume in 2015, Granta, Gorse, The Dublin Review, Best British Short Stories in 2014 and 2015, and elsewhere. She has judged a number of awards and been on several residencies, and edited at numerous publications, including 3AM and Five Dials. She was awarded the 2017 Arts Foundation Fellowship for Literature in Creative Nonfiction, and is currently doing a PhD in Creative and Critical Writing at the University of East Anglia. Between 2014 and 2018, she ran the Read underscore Women Twitter account, and is currently running the Twitter-based campaign at No Entry Arts. Joanna, welcome to Suite 212. Thank you. It's great to have you on the show at last. You know, the show normally records or broadcasts from London, and there have been a number of people who I've wanted to have on Suite 212 for a long time who are not based in the capital. And one of the few advantages of this situation for us is I have been able to interview a number of authors and artists and other people via Skype who are not based in London. For example, I spoke to Lars Iyer, who's in Newcastle, last week. And both Lars and you are people I've wanted to have on the show pretty much since its inception, three years ago now. So it's really good to finally get you on the show. Uh, obviously, these sessions are in their way a response to the COVID-19 crisis. The idea is to give listeners a focus on something else other than the pandemic, although all of the shows have touched on the coronavirus outbreak in some way or another. And I know you've been working on a project that has come specifically out of the lockdown and the circumstances around it called Zines in Dark Times. So I wondered if you'd like to explain to our listeners what the Zines in Dark Times project is how it's structured and what might happen to it in the future. Well, I was thinking about zines. I had a number of friends making zines already and how a zine exchange is ideal at the moment. Um, It's something you can make at home with very few materials. You you know, it's helpful to have a printer or, but you don't even have to have that. You can have, you can do it with stamps. You can do it with anything, kind of a hand-drawn edition. The post has become something that I very much look forward to and the idea of getting a zine through 
your door is hugely exciting. Um, so I wanted to start a zine exchange and collect one copy of each zine, hopefully for an exhibition. Um, I'm very interested in, as you said, you've been talking to people who aren't based in London. I'm very interested in all forms of art that are widely accessible for participation by people who aren't necessarily at the centres of art, who don't necessarily have the equipment, who don't necessarily have the training, um, but who might like to be able to do something creative. Also, I, I like, um, it's nice to have a range. Um, I've certainly invi invited uh, and freely invited via Twitter and specifically invited a number of pretty well-established writers and artists because it's great to have a form that can be used really by anyone and on any subject uh, in any medium so long as it's postable. What might happen to the zines on the other side of the lockdown? Well I hope that they will be exhibited because I didn't want to ask people to do a project for nothing. Um, I don't have any money but I didn't want to ask people to do a project which would give nothing back to them particularly. I hope it gives on several levels. I hope there's the pleasure of exchanging the zines with friends and family and colleagues. And um, I hope that there's also the pleasure of providing some sort of record of these times of what people are thinking. Zines tend to be very responsive to often to personal events and the personal, the autofictional is an area that I've worked in a lot. So I hope that it you know, obviously, the zines can also be completely fantastic and not at all to do with what's going on with you at all. But they tend to be pretty, pretty responsive. So I'm excited to provide a record of creativity during these times uh, that we can see as a snapshot of what was going on or of, of, of responsiveness in the widest sense of the word, not necessarily responding directly to COVID as a topic. And it's, it's interesting with the Zines project because it's a much slower response than a lot of arts institutions have produced. I think there's a certain level of denial and panic in the art world about loss of revenue and loss of relevance, really. And it's notable that a lot of art institutions have been pouring out a glut of content, either new content or aggregating things that already exist on the internet in a way that a lot of people are finding quite overwhelming. You know, certainly I have tons of films and articles and other things sort of saved up either on my hard drive or on various websites or in my browser you know in some cases films that I downloaded from say Uberweb 15 years ago that I haven't got around to watching yet um, and in fact watched have been watching some of these films that have been sitting around for a very long time but it feels to me like an interesting and much more considered response to the current situation I know you've been writing both in response to the horrors of the coronavirus epidemic itself and the ways in which uh, arts institutions have been reacting to it. So I wonder if you'd like to talk a bit about uh, some of your, your recent writing in response to um, to the current situation. Well, I think like a lot of writers and artists, something that happened very quickly after lockdown started was I got invitations from a number of different institutions to, to react very quickly. And I, I was quite cross about that. And I thought, well, you know, why am I supposed to have a reaction immediately? Um, and how could this privilege a certain kind, certain kinds of art, certain kinds of writing? Not everyone processes things quite so quickly or in the same way. Um, so I, I think Andrew Gallix asked me to contribute to 3AM magazine where I used to edit. And I just made a little gif instead of I thought, how do I really feel about this? So I made a little gif that sort of flashes on and off and it says stop paying for things and then it tells you stop making art 
And I was quite I was quite pleased with that in the end because um, it was really how I felt. I was thinking not only about the pressure to create something, but also how is this all being monetized? How is it being financed? Because of course, a lot of the requests that I'd had to produce something were for either very little or no money. And at the same time, I was having events cancelled. I was having sort of readings and guest lectures, that sort of thing, where I would have been paid cancelled. And this is the same for obviously many, many writers and artists, although, you know, obviously the Arts Council has set up a fund which you can apply to for money to cover for expenses during lockdown. But of course, writing a letter of that sort, a begging letter is an art in itself. And it also slants what you're doing in a certain direction, which which can feel very strange. Uh, applying for grants and funding can feel like an opposition at the best of times. But when you're required to detail the bad things that have happened to your career because of current circumstances, then that can sort of put an entirely different slant on your writing itself. Um, and I, I often think about these pressures that exist in the art world anyway, and in the, the, the publishing world, particularly writing, because I think that's what I know best. The pressure to tell your story in certain ways and to ask for certain responses, to engage with readers via sympathy and identification, particularly when you're writing creative nonfiction. And I find it all a bit disturbing, but also fascinating. And I'm always working around these kind of emotional demands that are made both on the writer and on the reader. Because as a reader, I, I don't, sometimes I, I read things which ask me to emote, often for very good reasons, by writers describing very moving things that have happened to them. But I think, sometimes I think, well, I don't actually want to be engaged necessarily in this emotional way all the time. Or if I do, I want some more reflection on it. I don't necessarily want to identify with the writer. I'm not sure that this putting myself in the, the writer's place is always the most useful way to go about things. And it, that's just a personal reaction. But I'm, you know, I, I, I like to think, well, what's this all about? And could it be done differently? And why, why are we being asked to do things this way? Yeah, I mean, I certainly feel like the kind of rapid response to ongoing circumstances is not really the domain of the artist or novelist or short story writer it's more the domain of the journalist and particularly the opinion journalist and um people who've listened to previous episodes of of this program will know my opinion on them uh which you know i feel that maybe there are there are too many opinion journalists who knows but yeah i'm certainly much more appreciative of slower more considered and maybe slightly more tangential ways to grapple with the current set of circumstances I wonder, did you want to discuss a new piece of writing you've done, though, The Dispossessed? It was one of these pieces that I was asked to write, and it's for Lolly Editions, who are asking 19 writers worldwide to produce a response. And I think really I wanted to think about all the things I've been talking about, about how how we can respond and um, not directly thinking about my response, but thinking about the structures involved in the response, which solidify very very quickly or have solidified very quickly and there are certain things I feel a little bit constrained about saying like um, it's quite difficult to talk about how enjoyable isolation can be you know certainly to be honest personally I'm, I'm enjoying it very much because I, I like creating in a relatively non-social environment and obviously it's it's terrible that 
this is something that's enforced under the circumstances of humanitarian disaster. But it's, it becomes quite difficult to account for certain things, to, to talk about various emotions. But also I'm, I was very interested in the kinds of narratives that are produced by, I guess, newspapers and official government responses, the kinds of language and the kinds of structures of narrative that are being used to tell stories that always seem to displace something that are indirect and that are trying to cope with some things that are very, very difficult to talk about. All my work really is about getting increasingly stupid, I think. I'm, I feel quite stupid at the moment. I feel quite badly informed and uninformed and, and quite it's quite, it's quite difficult to formulate responses. So I feel like I'm kind of groping around an area in which I'm, I'm quite badly informed anyway. But nevertheless, this ex, this ex, there is an expectation of response, not just professionally, but obviously in your personal life and on social media. And you choose your level of response. Uh, you choose your level of engagement. Uh, as, and of course, certain levels of engagement are enforced on you, depending on how you're you're going through this. I'm just going to read an extract from a short piece called The Dispossessed. Instead of a novel called The Possessed, I invented a movie called The Dispossessed. To be dispossessed is, at its most basic level, to be deprived of the possession of life. And secondarily, it is to be deprived of possession of narrative, which is how you came to have what you can call a life which makes the life you have something separate from you, something that if you possess, you have some chance to change. Being dispossessed is also a process as it takes place across time. Even when it refers to what happened to you in the past, you can still be in the present, dispossessed. A 36-year-old woman dies of the virus at home in London. A visiting healthcare check considered her not a priority for hospital treatment. Her husband fed her then went away to rest. When he returned, he said, she was already dead. Already is something enclosed within a narrative that is already over. Her husband did not see the end of his wife's narrative that had already come to an end. He only knew it had already ended. It was a story with no reader. He was not the reader, and his wife was not its subject. Where was she? Somewhere else. She did not tell her story. Nevertheless, a story arrived in which she was an inconvenient body that could hardly be accounted for, and which was swiftly removed by funeral directors in hazmat suits. Later, the story was read not by her husband, who also did not tell it, but by readers of newspapers. Sometimes the story in the headlines was that she was a Londoner. Sometimes she was a mum. Very occasionally, it mentioned that she was black, and more often that her husband was a refuse collector, which is code to tell the reader they were likely poor. Who knows which of these was a factor in her dispossession? The problem when you suspect yourself of being the victim of a story that is not your own is how can you ever be sure? Narratives used to be about how you got where you are now. The future was open. From now on, they work backwards from how you died, with death not an addendum but a defining factor. Every tale has a teller. Now only death will tell what sort of life you had, and it will define you at the point you were triaged for death, 
at what point you are deemed too old, too subject to an underlying condition, too insignificant, too not a subject to be a priority. Narratives belong to those left alive, but they're told about what has ended. That's the paradox. You can never peep in on your own obituary to read about your life and what it meant. Thank you, and I'm sure the the full text will be available uh, shortly. Um, I'd like to move the conversation on now and ask what you were working on just before the lockdown, just before the realisation that the coronavirus was going to dramatically change our lives in the short and quite possibly long term as well. I know you were late, I know you were working on a project around uh, Jean-Luc Godard, so I wonder if you'd like to tell our listeners about that. Well, really, that's in reaction to lockdown. Just before lockdown, I was finishing off my PhD, which I haven't submitted yet and which I will still have to do corrections to, but hopefully it's more or less there. And I was also, I'd organised a conference. It was going to be a very exciting symposium about digital creative criticism. But of course, that had to be cancelled. It was scheduled for the end of March. And strangely enough, I, I hadn't thought about what to do next, except in the vaguest terms. But lockdown gave me quite a lot of creative freedom in that I just thought, well, I'm stuck here. I've had things cancelled. I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm just going to write about exactly what I'd like to write about. And I thought, well, things things always come together for me through a number of routes that are from quite different angles. And so I have to it's quite, it becomes quite difficult to go back and trace them all. But one of them was lockdown. It was about having watched the Jean-Luc Godard film um, La Chinoise last year for the first time. I've, I'd seen most of his other, certainly the most well-known films before, but I hadn't seen that one. And um, it stayed in my mind, especially during lo- lockdown, because, and that's also where the title for The Dispossessed comes from, because... La Chinoise is based on Dostoevsky's novel, which has sometimes been translated into English as The Possessed. Um, It's about a group of radicals who are locked down themselves in a flat in Paris, which was Godard's own flat. Um, That's where he did the filming. And uh, they're thinking about how they can apply their lives to politics, to revolution, whether they should use violence, all sorts of other things. And they're stuck inside and they're stuck inside in a very controlled environment there are certain colors that Godard doesn't like to use he loves red especially in this film because of the the politics and he 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 doesn't like green and I started thinking about how Godard doesn't like green and as an artist I don't usually use the color green either or I have to think very hard before I use it for various reasons and I was thinking back about why that was the other thing that has fascinated me for a long time about Godard is the way that he films women. Obviously, he's best known for filming Anna Karina, who's not in that movie. But this co-creation of woman as icon between Godard, his cameraman, and his actresses is something that's fascinated me for, for a very long time. I write a lot on appearing as a woman and thinking about beauty and what an important thing it has been throughout my life and also as for most people something that hovers in unachievability and also doesn't seem to 
produce anything but itself, although obviously it relates to many other areas of life as a, as a kind of a currency. So all these things I wanted to write about. So I'm, I'm writing a, a short book, a, a monograph of, of a sort, probably centered around one shot in La Chinoise and spiralling out from there into the other things I've talked about. And it's, it's just pure pleasure. You know, these are things that I think about all the time anyway. So putting them down is, is just fun. Yeah, and it's interesting to, you know, hear you talk about Godard and film. You know, Godard has long been one of my favourite filmmakers, somebody who I spent an awful lot of time with as a student and particularly like his 60s work. And, you know, I've always been very interested in the relationship between literature and visual culture, literature and visual art, and film as a meeting point for, you know, text and image. And I know that you were an illustrator before you really took up writing, and then you've combined both of those practices, sometimes with the emphasis more on writing, sometimes more on illustration. Um, Of course, you were the person I asked to do the cover of my book, Trans and Memoir, in 2015, uh, partly because of the drawings you'd done of women authors such as uh, Sheila Hetty, Deborah Levy and others in 2014 as part of your Read Women project. Uh, so I wonder if you could talk a bit about your experience of moving from illustration to writing and maybe how you've combined those two practices since? I'm always very abrupt and you know this is something that comes from Godard as well or or not necessarily comes from him but something that I identify with in his film you know my life seems to move like within those jump cuts um with with hopefully a little like little frame which has just a single word on it which frames the next part and is in a bright color or is in very strong black and white so I, I jump very quickly from one th- or not quickly but abruptly from one thing to another and I you know I just have to accept that's the way I do things uh, I was an illustrator for a long time because um, it was the only way I could think of making any money out of art and I didn't really understand the art world at all which I still don't to a certain extent but I didn't coming from a background where I had no education in it and no understanding of what it meant and how to make my way in it I thought well the only way really to get paid for making visual work is to have p- pictures published in newspapers. So that's what I did for a very long time. I did a lot of work for The Guardian and other papers. In the end, I, I, I sort of stopped because I was getting into a very, I suppose, a slightly uncreative area. I was I was churning out a lot of work very quickly. But really, you know, really I stopped because I was going out with a really horrible person who told me it was trivial and that what I did was trivial. So I, I stopped because I'm, I'm very susceptible to what other people think of me. In some ways, that was a good thing because then I had to go and find other things to do. But in the last, I don't know, year or so, I've come back to thinking, well, you know, what if I could do things, could do visual things which were a little bit more freeform. And if I don't have to rely on them for money anymore because I'm doing teaching and I'm doing all sorts of writing and lecturing and so on, what if I could just do what I wanted or do things that seemed particularly responsive to things I'd written or things other people had written, but don't necessarily have to immediately earn me a fee? So I started um, last year thinking about doing some visuals for Grow a Pair, which is a tiny book I wrote that was published in 2015. And 
I wanted to do something sort of abstract. Uh, Grow a Pear is, is, is a, a mini book. It's nine and a half fairy tales about sex. And I wanted to think about, well, how can I make drawings for that for, for a new edition? Because I published it initially with a very small publisher, which was really one person in Berlin who's wonderful, Redux Books. But the uh, publisher decided she wanted to stop doing publishing and go and do her own writing and she very kindly gave me the rights back so I'd love to republish it but I thought well what I'd like to do is put something else in there for a new edition and maybe more text work but maybe visuals but I don't want to draw explicitly what's going on because a lot of my writing isn't really visualizable in a very straight way I don't like having characters and plots and situations and often the joy of writing for me is to make something that can only ever exist in words. So I, I was really thinking about, I found out about Indian tantric art, which I know that tantric um, practices have kind of stereotypical link to sex, but they're not necessarily all about sex. They're ritual drawings, which abstract things to a certain level and are made as, as a practice in themselves, not to create a piece of art in the end, uh, but some of them have been collected. And I just became fascinated by the levels of abstraction in them and also some of the material practices and layerings that were going on there. So I, 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 was, I, I thought, well, you know, I see if I can apply this to creating something in response to the writing that I've done. Then No Alibis Press in Belfast, who are a wonderful independent press, asked me, uh, if I'd like to do an artist book edition of my work Seed, which is currently a digital narrative online. And I said, yes, that sounds like a wonderful idea. And they asked me also, would I do some visuals for that? So I'm, I decided what I wanted to do with that, uh, because it started as a digital project, was maybe create some generative art through programming. So feeding data in and allowing the program to generate, to grow which seemed very appropriate to seed, to, to you, you put in a seed value in programming and then you can allow uh, the visual program I'm using, currently I'm using a program called Rhinoceros, to generate lines in response to the data that you put in. So that's that's really exciting. It's really nice to do some visual work that you have a certain amount of creative control over, but you leave some things to the machine. I'm so happy to have written seed. I think Possibly that and I mean you're often asked to choose which is your favourite book you've written and it's very difficult to say obviously it changes all the time but at the moment thinking from isolation about isolation and thinking about indescribableness, speechlessness, lack of communication, Seed is something I'm so happy to have written because it's really based on um, my teenage years which in the late 80s were also overshadowed by a lot of fear and misinformation around contagion that was more spread out and less acute and there was no lockdown. But it was the era of AIDS, of CJD, of Chernobyl, of the idea that anything you did with your body, if you had sex, if you breathed, if you ate the wrong thing, you could die, you could, um, or you could become seriously ill. So I'd, I'd spent a lot of time thinking, how can I describe the inchoate nature of, of my experiences? Because none of these things happened to me, but I lived as did everyone in that era, under under a shadow of fear. And there being no internet, under a, a huge lack of control over the information that was passed on to you, which was usually through official, semi-official sources, such as school and newspapers, but also um, a lot of gossip, a lot of rumour, especially as 
as a non-adult, I, I have a recurring thing about you know things we don't talk about and trying to describe all the things that were not talked about and describe about how they weren't talked about was really my task in seed and there's also a lot of cataloging I like to do there's a lot of referencing of just bringing in of patchworking in pieces of official writing writing from women's magazines writing from official documents writing from newspaper articles all sorts of things like that and also just lists of names, thinking about how we know things, how we understand things, and trying to make that into a narrative, into a, into a kind of expression of a consciousness. I'm always working around the idea of how do, we, how do we create a character in a book because conventional ideas of character, especially of, round, of so-called rounded character, which is a sort of terrible phrase, seem to work in ways that imitate something literary, in that I don't, I don't know whether I think like that. I got, you know, as you can tell from interviewing me here, I can hardly string a sentence together anyway, except when I'm writing. I'm much more articulate when I write something like The Dispossessed and I sit down and think about what I, what exactly it is I want to write around. Uh, but the rest of the time, I'm, I don't have a sentence in my head. I just have a kind of node and of thought and many tangents that go off from that and how I have to come back to all the time in order to express anything i often feel the same way about my writing actually i'm much happier when i'm you know sat down with uh sort of a computer or better still with a physical pen and paper and i'm kind of creating the chain for my own thoughts the structure for my own thoughts and i feel a lot more articulate there than i ever do talking to somebody or behind a microphone even yeah i find it very difficult and 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 that's why i hope I'm always going towards things that I find difficult and trying to deal with them. And, you know, for me, that's what writing's for. Something that interests me with you as well, though, as well as the actual writing, of which I've read a fair amount, but not all of, is is some of your wider engagements with the literary world. You know, we, we first met on Twitter, I think, in maybe 2012 or 2013. And, you know, I was struck firstly by your website, the bad ord type pad website your kind of visual and textual blog of your work uh, which interests me an awful lot and then of course you started a twitter-based campaign called read women in 2014 which i think was initially supposed to just run for a year and was just a quite quite simple exhortation for people to just read more female authors which i think then eventually ran for four years or so and attracted quite a lot of attention so i wondered if we could talk about that campaign you know what made you set something up uh, with this you know quite simple but very important premise how you felt about the reaction to it whether you were surprised by the level of engagement with it yeah i was very surprised i mean all that happened in the beginning was i it it came from a, just a personal project to produce some new year's cards for friends where i i drew women um i crowdsourced names of women authors and the response was so huge that I was overwhelmed really. I think there might be something about about the drawing of there was some something about that kind of converting something into something else that attracted people initially. But then the drawing was only the start of it and it was only supposed to go on for a month in January. But I had such a lot of response that someone got in touch with me and said, Well, you know, you really ought to start something wider with this. And I've reserved a Twitter account in this name. And if you don't want to do it, can I do it? And I said, Oh, okay, I'll do it. 
And that was really the start of me feeling, it, it, which is very interesting. It's, it was really the start of me feeling that I could do something that could focus something for people and that could be useful. It was really an exploration for me. I'd, I'd noticed a few other people, for instance, Matthew Yakubovsky and Jonathan Gibbs, the year before, amongst others, had done short-term projects where they decided only to read women authors for a certain period of time. There were other people doing similar things. So it was part of something. And I hope it drew on those things and I hope it gave back to them. But it just seemed to become a focus for something. I, I quite like running things that are just a, a locus for something to happen, like the Zines Project, where a lot of other people are making it happen too. I, I don't... I like non-hierarchical ways of running things. I like to I like to start something and not necessarily be totally in control of it and see where it goes and I and certainly to invite other people in. By the end of Read Women, which I decided to end for the moment in 2018 because that was when my PhD was getting quite serious in terms of workload and there were four people. There had been a variety of people tweeting from the account. At that time, there were four people. And at that time, similar things were happening in their lives and in their works that made it more difficult to go on. So it, I had a lot of offers to keep it going, but I just decided to stop it for the moment. But Alison Devers of the excellent Second Shelf Bookshop in London, um, Rare Books by Women, is lined up to take the account over when she can. So it's it's wonderful to know that she could be in good hands and that there'll be some kind of focus on, in the loosest sense of the word, exploring writing by women, focus, you know, focusing, responding, being flexible, being responsive to what's going on and hopefully being supportive of the careers of women writers who particularly might need support. And also recovered voices, they're very important. Absolutely. I mean, you know, obviously Virago have been running for years and years reissues of kind of early 20th century women authors who were sort of neglected at the time and have been maybe neglected by posterity and, you know, bringing back the likes of Barbara Commons or Dorothy yeah. Richardson to public attention has also been as important as bringing through newer voices, I think. Yeah. And Tramp, Tramp Press are very good at this Tramp Press in Ireland and Dorothy in the States and also Persephone. Yeah, I mean, I know that you've moved on from here to running another campaign around ageism in literature and particularly in literary and artistic awards. I think, you know, all of us have seen awards for writers or artists or filmmakers or whatever that require you to be under 25 or under 30. And increasingly, I'm seeing the term emerging rather than young being used, mm -hmm. which is good. Indeed, I put out a call out for younger writers to contribute to a volume of short stories that I've been asked to contribute and the publisher immediately corrected me and said thanks for doing this but um, we're actually looking for emerging writers you can be 80 or 90 years old as long as you're not a kind of established yeah. established and published author and you've been running No Entry Arts on Twitter in a similar vein to Read Women perhaps and I wonder if you'd like to just talk a bit more about that about when you know when you started your own literary career and how you found this kind of ageism to be a barrier to you at the start of your career I guess I started writing what people would call late and I've described my experience as I said as, as a visual artist where I, I didn't really understand some of the opportunities that might have been open to me because I was self-trained um, and I was also self-trained as a writer. So 
it, it took me a very, very long time to get over a lot of things that I'd internalised about writing, about, and, and also a complete lack of knowledge about how to proceed because um, I hadn't really been, you know, had any, had any education in, in either of those areas. They were just things that I hoped that I could do. I, th- I thought this is this is not just going on with me. This is going on with a lot of people. Um, I saw a lot of opportunities by the time that I I discovered them that weren't open to me, but also that weren't open to people who were younger than me and people who were older than me. It seems particularly difficult. Every, everyone, you know, as Tolstoy says, every unhappy family has its own story, and everyone who has been slowed in their ability to commit to a full-time or a dominant-time artistic practice has their own story of what has stood in their way, you know, from prejudices of various kinds to illness and disability to just life events, um, lack of money to study perhaps, care issues. But there there are so many reasons that people can't commit to or just don't find out about the opportunities available to them and until it's too late for some of them. And that really shouldn't be an issue. I agree uh, as somebody who, you know, it felt for me late to be starting my kind of journalistic and writing career improper in my late 20s. And it felt late to me. And partly that was because I just hadn't really had certain family connections other people might have I hadn't really yes, realized yeah. I hadn't really realized that you kind of had to be in London to begin that kind of career you didn't yeah. necessarily have to stay there but I'm still not in London and you know I still feel one of the reasons why online and remote campaigning and remote art projects work so well for me is you know I do have commitments I have care commitments and I have you know also I, I just can't you know very difficult for me to be able to afford to live in London to be honest and I just don't, I don't I'm just not available for a lot of things but I am available virtually which is great for me and hopefully for a lot of other people too. Yeah I mean I would like to sort of conclude the interview by talking to you actually about your relationship with the literary world and how maybe these sort of online spaces and real life spaces meet and how you feel about that I mean you know the last of these interviews as I said at the top of the show was with Lars Iyer and Lars and I talked quite a lot about the decreasing distance between writers and audiences that have come about through technological changes over the last you know sort of 200 years or so the time that the the novel really evolved into you know the bourgeois literary art form and you know Lars wrote a manifesto for the White Review in 2011 which you probably read at the time called Nude in Your Hot Tub mm-hmm. Facing the Abyss yeah. a, manif- a literary manifesto after the end of literature and manifestos it was very entertaining and we read a bit on on the last episode but you know it struck a chord with me because I've always had quite a complex relationship with the you know the kind of the world around writing I've you know always tended to go to literary parties but tend to sort of not enjoy them and not want to go and have gradually distanced myself from them um you know I've always struggled with the amount of socializing that feels like it's required or at least greatly helpful uh and you know I speak as somebody who's coming from a background in writing for newspapers and magazines which is slightly different to the literary world I think but you know also the number of um of events I have to do just firstly to 
build up and keep up a profile but secondly just as a backbone of my income and obviously these are all yes. gone in the COVID-19 crisis and you know I'm suddenly aware on how much I was dependent on them but you know as a teenager and you know when I was kind of becoming interested in literature you know I was very interested in in the ways that say J.D. Salinger or Thomas Pynchon managed to be kind of total recluses uh, and I wonder if that's even possible now I feel like Jenny Diskey was the the last person who was able to really make that work I wonder how much that is possible now. So I wonder how you feel about, you know, having to engage with the literary world, you know, on a sort of professional level, how comfortable you are with it, how much you enjoy it or not. Well, it's it's somewhere between extreme excitement and rage. It's like, like what you said about the literary parties, you, know, you get very excited about being invited to this kind of swanky party in London or something. And then you get there and you realise you hate it or you love it and then you hate it and then you, you go, want to run away. And I'm, I, think, I think half of the people in the room are probably feeling like that. You know, literary events can range from lovely to appalling. Probably we shouldn't say so much that they're not what literature is about and literature is about books, but I wonder whether... They are what literature is about and what we need to do is change literature and change books because sometimes I think, well, you know, the book is an accessory to something and it's some kind of structure I don't fully understand, but I'm participating in much as, you know, class structures work or gender structures. Obviously, I, I love I love books. I love the materiality of books and also I love texts. I love um, texts that exist independently of work on the page that can exist in performance, that exist in, you know, the ether of radio or on the internet in a number of pixels. And they exist. But literature is also about the interconnectedness of the context in which those exist and can exist and can come to exist. And, uh, you know, there are some very old structures there, very old publishing structures, which we can't necessarily expect to treat us nicely um, coming from places where we might want to turn those over. So, you know, it's I, I think a few years ago, I did think that at one point I was very excited about the idea that I might become a novelist because the novel seemed to be still the bedrock or the, the testing point of what literature is. And it was novelists who got in the papers, who got reviewed, who got treated as kind of serious people who might have something to say about the Covid crisis which I don't at all and I just realised eventually I couldn't do it and then I just thought well okay let's look at this are you reading literary novels and I wasn't reading literary novels that wasn't what I was doing I was reading other things you know I was reading kind of art writing poetry theory mostly things that were not novels and I realised I just don't think that's going to happen to me and the structures that I realise this very, very slowly because that world is so immensely attractive and does seem to be what regular readers think of, including me as a regular reader, think of as publishing success or as what it is to be a writer. So, you know, now I have to think about, OK, well, if I'm not going to exist in this structure in a very easy or uh, smooth way, what are the structures that exist that... I can find my way in and there are some um, which are very exciting you know I do love I love what's happening in art writing now I love publishers that are publishing hybrid work which is not quite fiction it's not quite non-fiction um, it's responsive publishers like Bookworks like Sharon Kivland 
at uh, constellations, as I think her current project, Ducks to Press, who are a new press run from Italy that I'm I'm doing some work for at the moment. Of course, all the, the indie publishers who do work with fiction, like Trump and Galley Beggar, and, and other stories, of course, uh, but who are pushing fiction towards something more experimental. There are these incredible networks there that stretch back into the past and do have a history and also have a future in which hopefully they they can they can kind of be something that is more recognized um and that's partly the zine thing as well i'm i'm interested in informal publishing structures i'm interested in the amateur i i, qu- I keep liking to press reset on what i'm doing to a level at which i become very amateur at what i'm doing and i have to learn it again and i'm quite excited by by anything by 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 any uh practice you have to do this with um, so yes, you know the world of publishing is 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 massively exciting right now, and it does exist beyond what I thought when I started as a writer. What I hoped would become of me. Yeah, I mean, you and I both um, both really launched our writing careers um, early in the 2010s, and I think it's been quite an interesting and exciting decade for publishing, actually. And I think there's been a real attempt to escape from the constraint of the dominance of the novel as a literary form. And I think, you know, more and more writers are saying, well, actually, you know, the novel as a form does not necessarily convey my experiences or the experiences that I'm interested in. And, you know, something like a themed collection of short stories or creative nonfiction or autofiction might be something better for me. And I think there's, you know, there's been a proliferation of all of those types of writing over the last 10 years. And I really think that's a good thing. Anyway, I think that might be uh, might be a nice place to conclude the conversation. So, Joanna, thank you so much for joining me on Suite 212. Thank you so much. Listeners, we will be back soon with more Suite 212 sessions. We have one lined up with the artist Abba Sahedi for the next week or so, and then we'll be working on bringing you a further set of interviews after that. The... Um, The pace of these interviews uh, and their release may slow down a bit in the the near future as I return to some of my writing projects and teaching, but we will continue to bring you these interviews during the lockdown. Of course, you can find us on Twitter at sweet underscore 212. You can find us on iTunes and SoundCloud. You can subscribe to us at patreon.com slash sweet 212. I've been your host, Juliet Jakes. Thanks for listening. We'll be back very soon. Take care. Goodbye.